Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to share some thoughts around a gearing investment strategy. And really gearing investment strategy just refers to the um, strategy of borrowing monies uh, to invest, which has been a really popular strategy in Australia, particularly for uh, people investing in residential property naturally. And um, mortgages are a wonderful servant, but really a terrible master. So that means that if you use mortgages properly in a risk adverse way, they're a very powerful wealth accumulation tool. And actually, uh, whilst people regard mortgages uh, as liabilities, really they can be used as assets. When I say assets, obviously you still owe the money. It's not a, it's not a personal asset but you be used in a way that are actually going to create a lot of good rather than um, any negative financial consequences. However, if you don't borrow prudently, you know, you, you uh, over-borrow, overextend yourself, uh, invest in the wrong assets, then mortgages can b- do more harm than good and eat away at your wealth. Um, my book, my next book, uh, rules of the Lending Game uh, comes out next week, or at least I get copies uh, that I can sell uh, my clients and podcast listeners and so forth uh, next week. So, uh, and it's in bookstores uh, next month. Uh, so that is April two thousand and twenty. Uh, so I thought after eighteen years of uh, since I established Pro Solution, I thought it was timely to kind of share some insights into how a gearing strategy works, different ways to approach or or consider a gearing strategy, um, and how it impacts your overall investment returns. Some of these things are obvious, but really until you sit down and and sit back and go, yeah, okay, I I get what you're saying, uh, it doesn't necessarily, the penny doesn't really drop uh, sometimes for, for some people. Okay, so let's get into it. The first observation is that inflation will eventually eat away at the value of your debt over time. So that is inflation will essentially, or in a way, repay your loan over time. So the thing is that interest rates include uh, or reflect inflationary expectations. So that is when inflation is expected to be high, interest rates are high, and when inflation is expected to be low, interest rates are low. So part of the reason why interest rates are low today is that um, certainly the RBA wants to stimulate the economy and have more money flow into the economy, so clearly they want to reduce rates to an expansion mode, but also inflationary expectations are relatively low as well, uh, and that's put a little bit of downward pressure on interest rates. Um, We know that uh, inflation isn't included in a loan amount because if you have a loan of $200,000 today uh, and you don't make any principal repayments in respect to that loan, in 20 years you'll still owe $200,000. But we also know that our purchasing power reduces over time. You know, $200,000 today won't be worth the same from a purchasing power perspective in 20 years. Um, just like in the mid-80s, if you know a $200,000 loan was a massive loan, it was a really substantial loan. Today, it's considered a small loan. Whereas today, a million-dollar loan seems quite big. 
but I bet you in 20 years' time, a million-dollar loan won't be as big a deal as it is today. In fact, if we assume that the inflation rate will average over 2% per annum for the next 20 years, then in real terms, in today's dollars terms, a million-dollar loan will be equivalent to $670,000 in 20 years and only $550,000 in 30 years. So really, your loan in real terms halves over in the long run, over a 30-year period. So because inflation is reflected in current interest rates, essentially borrowers are paying the inflationary cost each and every year. And as a result, uh, in real terms, their loan value reduces over the long run. Uh, so you don't really need your asset to be doing a whole lot. Well, uh, um, as long as your asset keeps up with inflation, you will build equity in real terms. Now, hopefully you, you, want, to, uh, you want your asset to perform uh, or, or grow or appreciate it at rates much better than inflation, uh, clearly, which is the whole point of asset selection. Uh, the second observation is that uh, gearing as a strategy magnifies your return on equity. So when I was saying return on equity, it's really return on cash contribution. So um, using some borrowings, however, when acquiring an asset, say acquiring an investment property, means that you only you have to use less of your cash. And sometimes using less of your cash is a better um, idea, particularly while interest rates are low. But let's if we use um, if we assume interest rates are five percent. Now, obviously, there are a lot lower than 5% today, but let's look at it as sort of a long-term uh, example. If you contribute uh, and you go and buy an investment property for, say, $750,000, and let's say you contribute 60% of the cost in cash and you borrow 40%. If you do that, I estimate, um, based on, again, interest rates of 5%, the property will be break-even. That is that it's its rental income will be enough to pay for all its expenses and the interest cost in respect to the loan. So really, it's not costing you any cash flow and your just initial contribution is 60%. If you retain that property for 20 years and it grows at an average rate of, say, 7%, uh, then it will be worth about $2.9 million, so 750 up to 2.9 after 20 years. And if the investor sells that, repays the loan, pays for selling costs and capital gains tax, I estimate they walk away with just over $2 million. So really their initial cash contribution of $450,000, being 60% of the purchase price, has grown from four fifty dollars to $2 million over a 20-year period, which I think most of us would be pretty comfortable with. That equates to a compounding capital growth rate of 7.9%, let's call it 8%. Now, if they hadn't had any gearing, they contributed their cash, their compounding annual average rate of return would have been just under 6%. So the fact that we went and borrowed 40% of the asset actually increases our return by 2%. And the reason for that is that um, there's only a finite cost of the debt. We only have to pay the bank 5% in this example, um, and we get to keep the remaining return uh, that our asset produces. So the cheaper the debt is, the greater the opportunity cost of putting your own cash into a deal. Which brings me to my third observation, 
which is uh, return on cash is even more impressive. So consider the situation, and this would be more common, where we don't actually contribute any cash towards the acquisition cost of a property. So that is, we go and borrow the total cost, including stamp duty and any other costs that we might incur as a result of purchasing the asset. Now, if we go and borrow 100% of the cost of an asset, it's very likely that the rental income from the property won't be enough to pay for all the expenses and also the loan interest. So there'll be a shortfall, um, commonly referred to naturally as negative gearing. Now, conservatively, if we go in and purchase a $750,000 investment property, interest rates are 5%. Um, conservatively, uh, which means I'm overestimating rather underestimating, I predict that the property will cost us about $175,000 um, to, to hold over a 20-year period from an after-tax perspective. So that is that the investment property is going to cost us that amount of money to hold that property over that period of time. That's the amount, of, uh, that's the amount that's going to dip into our cash flow over that 20-year period. However... If the investor that borrowed 100% of the purchase price sells that investment property after 20 years, assuming again 7% capital growth rate, pays, repays the loan, pays for capital gains tax, pays for selling costs and so forth, they walk away with uh, just under $1.6 million in cash. So therefore, by, uh, by committing to a contributing a regular amount each year to holding costs, which in aggregate amounts to $175,000 over a 20-year period, that, con that kind of cash flow contribution has resulted or has produced uh, a lump sum uh, cash return of $1.6 million. Now, that equates to a compounding annual growth rate of over 11.6%. So obviously much better than the 8% that we got from contributing the cash up front. Uh, and this is referred to your return on cash as opposed to return on equity, because you're not contributing any equity, any cash, at the beginning when you first purchase that investment property. And so that is a considerable return on equity, naturally. My observation or thought, the fourth observation or thought, is that borrowing as a strategy really just allows you to invest future income today. So consider these two situations. Option one is that you invest $20,000 a year for the next 30 years. So that's a total of $900,000 over a 30-year period. Or option two, go and borrow $900,000 today, invest it all today, and then put your $20,000 into a loan to repay it. So by the time uh, 30 years ticks around, you've got zero loan owing. You don't need to be a mathematician to realise that investing a lump sum today yields a much better result. So for people that are, I guess, more conservative or worry about borrowings, that's one way to sort of look at borrowings is what you're doing is you're not investing income. Uh, well, you are investing income that you don't already have, but what you're doing is borrowing today to invest in income that you expect to accumulate over the next period of time. Now, it might not be the next 30 years of income, Maybe you borrow the next 20 or even shorter time periods because obviously the longer we look out, depending on your age, the more uncertainty there is. Um, observation uh, number four is that an alternative way of looking at gearing and much different to the one that I just explained about investing future income. 
A traditional way of looking at gearing is that you go and borrow money to buy an investment asset and then gradually over time you repay the loan and so that one day you own the investment asset unencumbered, completely debt-free. However, an alternative way to look at borrowing as an investment strategy is that borrowing allows you to hold a particular asset for a finite period of time. So the strategy is never necessarily to hold that asset forever and one day own it completely, but really just to hold it for a period of time and then you will, so that you enjoy the benefits of the returns that that asset will produce over that period. Then one day you intend to sell the asset to repay the debt. So uh, instead of uh, looking at it as a way of financing or eventually owning a property, it's really just looking at using finance to hold a particular, get exposure to a particular asset or a particular market for a finite period of time. Now, I think uh, more and more people will start adopting uh, this philosophy or strategy or approach, uh, given how much or how expensive property is in blue chip locations. Um, it is becoming increasingly more difficult, for example, to go and buy a, you know, a, a large a family home in a in a blue chip location and then use your cash flow to eventually repay that debt. It's not impossible, but fewer and fewer people will be able to achieve that. However, uh, people might be able to say, look, I'll go and buy that home in that location. I'll service a loan for 20 years. That will be my cost associated with holding that asset. And then I'll sell that asset one day. And if I purchase well, uh, I should make a, a very large capital gain. So it's really gearing, it, uh, an alternative way of looking at a gearing strategy is really the ability to get exposure to a market for only a finite period of time. Now lastly, uh, in terms of my observations around the power and strategy of gearing, um, I wanted to make sure it was really clear that gearing, they have to do two things to make sure a gearing strategy works effectively. In fact, you'd be foolish to think, to think that borrowing to invest is a guaranteed way to build wealth. In fact, I think the reverse is true. And my experience and observation is that most investors actually achieve very poor results. So I've said heaps of times that I don't think investing is actually that difficult. Uh, uh, a sound strategy is often rooted in simple logic and evidence-based strategies. It's simple to understand, but it's not always easy to implement correctly. And I think that's where people uh, trip up or, or make mistakes. So if you're going to borrow to invest, you really need to do two things very well. The first thing is borrow safely. Investing is a marathon, not a race. Building wealth takes time and often many decades. The aim is to really enjoy the wealth accumulation process, which means spending a little bit of money today going on holidays, doing those sorts of things, so long as you're regularly saving money for tomorrow and investing it in a strategy that's going to build long-term wealth. It's not necessarily about living on bread and water and not enjoying the process so that you can scrimp and save. I mean, that could be a strategy that suits um, some people, but it won't suit a lot of people. So that means you need to borrow within your safe borrowing limits. You need to be prudent and you always consider possible changes but most importantly you've got to prepare yourself for unexpected changes 
For example, no one could have predicted the coronavirus a year ago or the oil price shocks uh, thanks to the Saudis and the Russians. The point is that you've got to be careful and to some degree the events that are unexpected, that are unpredictable, are the ones that cause the greatest shocks in markets and the greatest volatility. So I'm not saying be controlled by fear, jump at shadows and worry about everything that can go wrong. Quite the opposite. My point is just be conservative and typically a conservative approach towards borrowing is the most sensible approach. It's really a long journey rather than a race. The second um, thing you must do is you've got to do three things. Quality assets, typically assets that have lower volatility and then you've got to have patience. So the right assets and have patience. Uh, So assets with lower levels of volatility are typically suited better to gearing strategies because their price doesn't jump around as much. So price volatility really talks, uh, talks to changes in price over time. The share market has a historic volatility rate of 20%. So that is that um, uh, your annual returns can vary by plus or minus 20% from the mean return, the average return, which is 10%. So really, you can expect returns in the range of a loss of 10% or a positive of 30%. That's a big range. And that's why shares are quite volatile. Whereas property has a volatility rate of half that amount, 10%, which means your returns can be range from nil to plus 20 typically from a historic perspective. It's a much tighter range and people that are borrowing uh, to invest in those sorts of assets are going to feel more comfortable uh, because there's less chance of them being a negative equity position. The second point is the quality of your assets will determine your outcomes, determine your investment returns. Uh, If you want um, above average returns, you're not going to get them from average or below average quality assets. If you want above average returns, you must invest in above average quality assets. So quality is absolutely key to any investment strategy, but even more particularly so if you're borrowing to invest because at the end of the day, quality is going to generate most of your outcomes. So therefore, you must invest in the highest quality assets your budget will allow. And lastly, patience. You need to have a lot of it. People don't really get rich overnight. Almost it never happens. I mean, you can win Tats Lotto, but quite often those people don't hang on to that wealth either. It typically takes many decades, and you have to have the fortitude to ride out the challenging times. Anyone can invest in assets if they're always producing positive returns. That's really easy. But let's look at the share market over a recent couple of weeks. There's been lots of volatility and there's always going to be volatility in share markets. It's not new. None of this is new to really anyone. Volatility creates opportunities. And if you've invested well, in the long run, you'll be completely fine and your returns will be what you should expect, median style returns. Um, But the challenge is to close your eyes and and realise that this is just normal. Hang in there, um, look for opportunities, look for better value price markets, and in the long run, you'll be rewarded very well. Uh, But particularly if we're gearing and we're borrowing to invest in property, as anyone that's owned an investment-grade apartment, for example, over the last 10 years, you know you need to have plenty of patience. Okay, so there you go. A few weeks ago... I did a podcast about how cheap money is at the moment. And in that podcast, I talked about 
the real cost, I had a look at an actual example of uh, the cost to hold $800,000 investment property was only $6,000 after tax per annum. So it's the cheapest time in history to go out and employ a gearing strategy. That means that it's probably likely to be the most profitable time in history to employ a gearing strategy. And that's why I wanted to write this blog, just to muse, I guess, on some of the pros and cons associated with gearing. As I said, I'm uh, going to start selling copies of my new book, uh, Rules of the Lending Game, next week. So certainly uh, look out for that if you're interested. Um, and hopefully you can pick up a copy and it's quite timely given uh, where the property market and the the lending markets are. Uh, But until next week, bye for now.